Hi everyone, I'm Kina. I'm Catherine. And I'm Juliette, and we're a team of three high schoolers committed to engaging in meaningful discussion and learning more about the topics we're passionate about. Our conversations range from politics, to social justice, to environmental reform. Anything goes. Welcome to All of the Above, out loud. Okay. Alright, so you're here for our second episode. Welcome back. We're here with one of our good friends, Reese. So if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi everyone, my name is Reese Moon and I'm a 16 year old high school junior in the Palos Verdes Peninsula. I like competing in high school debate. I love to play the piano, sing and listen to music. And I also love trying new food creations and street food from various cultures. I was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome in seventh grade which is a tic disorder characterized by the chronic sustenance of vocal and motor tics. And I was diagnosed with OCD a little over a year ago. And I've been living with tics since the age of around six but they've waxed and waned. And over the past couple of years, I've experienced a sharp decline in the symptoms after learning various coping techniques and undergoing therapies that have really helped me understand um, the scope of my mental illnesses. Yeah, that's really cool. We're so lucky to have you here. You're technically our first guest, which is really cool. Um, yeah, and so we're really Glad excited. to be here. And we're gonna be doing some like an interview style kind of thing. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that's where Okay, Reese. So I follow your Instagram and your blog, Mindful Coping. So I would really love it if you could tell us a little bit about maybe your inspiration for the blog and like its purpose and all of that. So I started Mindful Coping, sort of idea of brainstorming around the, the summer of last year. And during this quarantine, I was really able to put those ideas into action. I post a lot of content related to how I've dealt with tics, anxiety, and OCD and all those you know, overlapping mental illness symptoms and how to cope with the diagnoses and cope with the fluctuation of symptoms. And I've written them in the blog format on my uh, mindfulcoping.net website or via short Instagram posts that I post daily. I like to emphasize sustainability, practicality, and an accurate mindset to approach mental illness in a way that is sustainable but not harmful to your mental health. And a lot of my writing is derived from my personal experience um, in therapy settings with professionals and exposure response therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy settings. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I don't know of anyone in my age that is doing that kind of thing. So when I, Kina and Catherine told me about what you're doing, I thought that was really cool, really great. And Thank you so um, that kind of leads us into the next question is, could you talk about one of the most meaningful experiences you had relating to tics, OCD? It could be, you know, like a blog. Sure. So I definitely say that my most meaningful experience was going through a series of cognitive behavioral therapy with a UCLA professor and a doctor who was doing a lot of research on neuroscience and neurotherapy and how we're able to cope with a lot of these tics and symptoms using things like both, uh, both physical and mental strategies. And what really inspired me to start Mindful Coping through that uh, beneficial experience was understanding how uh, difficult it actually is to get access to such treatments and how expensive they are and how so many people who need them or even need a diagnosis to begin with don't have the access to the resources they need to get help they need and also understand their bodies and their minds. Three of my classmates, even earlier in quarantine, had reached out after I first created Mindful Coping, telling me about their, their own experiences with the diagnosis of OCD and tics, but the difficulty that they experienced with finding qualified therapists or researchers, because there's really a lack of interest in this in a lot of academia. 
So it demonstrates um, the importance of, you know, fostering these open forums of discussion because I was able to learn about my friends' experiences, even though I had no idea what was going on beyond closed doors. Yeah, that's really great. And I'm sure a lot of people, like you said, have read your blog and been able to relate to it. And especially if it's people that are like your peers around the same age, I'm sure it's a lot easier to communicate because it's, you know, in vernacular that you can understand and it's not, um, you know, too sure. and stuff. And I really liked how you said, you know, health equity when it comes to mental disorders is a really big problem. And mm -hmm. so, you know, talking about that too is also really important. So that's really cool. For sure. Yeah, that's all really interesting. And I haven't really learned a lot about tics or OCD very much. So what do you think people without mental disorders can do to better understand or empathize with people that are struggling with their mental health? And what are some things that they shouldn't do either? Definitely. So there are so many misconceptions out there that I've talked about on my blog and Instagram. For example, one that, one that I get often is like, oh, isn't OCD just like being a germaphobe? And while um, attention to things like cleanliness can be a symptom for many people experiencing OCD, that is, that is sort of one you know, millionth of all the different experiences and individualized scenarios that can happen when someone's diagnosed with OCD. So I think that these sort of misconceptions um, aren't really to blame the person thinking about them, but sort of to blame how we've collectively as a society decided to portray mental illness and sort of failed to include that education, especially when, according to various studies and national surveys, almost 5% of Americans have experienced serious mental illnesses, and it reaches like 22% in the context of adolescence. So I think that it's something really uh, important that we should talk about. I think that if people don't understand what it's like to have mental disorders, um, a great resource is online. And there's a whole bunch of online blogs and websites, for example, like Mindful Coping that have been becoming more popular uh, websites that are written in the context of both medical professionals, but also personal narratives that give you a multifaceted understanding of what these mental illnesses can be like. But I think that uh, respectfully asking those who do experience them and doing personal research and making an effort to listen rather than judge, uh, obviously you should you know, try to keep the judgment to a minimum. And when I engage in dialogue with people who aren't as understanding, I don't try to blame them because it's not something that we usually talk about, but rather um, give them the benefit of the doubt. But if you don't understand, you know, there's always the internet as a great resource and your peers, if they also experience some of that. Hmm, that makes a lot of sense. And also I learned from your, from your blog, Mindful Coping, actually, I didn't realize how damaging saying oh, I'm so OCD about this or that could be to those in the community. Mm -hmm. so that was a really, For I, sure. I just like completely stopped saying stuff like that because I oh, actually had no idea before you. you had posted about that. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you so much. The misconception posts were really interesting and I learned a lot from those. Compared to the past, how has the stigma around mental illness changed? Because you talked a lot about how there wasn't a lot mm -hmm. of like education surrounding it, but has that changed sure. at all? I think the stigma has decreased, thankfully, and especially um, over the past couple of months, we've started to enter more and more discussions of how mental health and mental illness is more pervasive than we had uh, initially thought. Like I mentioned uh, previously, 5% of Americans who have experience serious mental illness or SMI, which is how it's recorded in like national databases. And 22% of adolescents is a huge number. And it really demonstrates 
how it's prevalent for so many Americans and people worldwide. And I'm glad that we're moving towards um, a more open-minded and educated discussion of mental health that includes things like personal accounts and also huge amounts of new psychological and neurological research that has been coming out because of technology. I definitely do still think there is a stigma with regards to uh, teen communities. And um, I've experienced something in my, you know, my own Asian American household. There's definitely a stigma behind talking about mental health, even if it's not, you know, diagnosed, but uh, general questions of anxiety, stress, or depressive episodes. There's a huge stigma I've experienced, especially with older generations. And there's sort of a mindset that I've experienced, oh, just walk it off or toughen up. And while it's important to remain tenacious and have an attitude of positivity, um, it's also harmful in order if, if you keep you know, pushing and pushing back and restricting the ability for you to freely talk about or come to terms with what you might be dealing with. And this restrictive attitude can sometimes prevent people uh, from seeking the help they need or understanding what's really at hand. So I think a stigma exists, but luckily we're um, moving forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. Reese. I was wondering if you're comfortable, could you talk about when you were diagnosed with tics and like how you were feeling before or after you learned about your diagnosis? Yeah, of course. So I first began to experience my tics. They were very simple tics like blinking or scrunching or like even picking at my lips as like an initial symptom of OCD, for example maybe when I was in like first or second grade. And um, when I visited the neurologist, tics are actually seen in almost one out of five of every children, even if it's just for maybe a week or a month. Some kids might uh, have a small tic that they deal with maybe when they're five or six, but they grow out of it. But what really distinguishes um, a transient tic or something that's very temporary uh, in comparison to more you know, long-term tic disorders like Tourette's, or persistent or chronic tic disorders is sort of how they develop and metamorphose over time. It only really started to hit me in around sixth grade when it became difficult to do things like play piano even, or sit still in a classroom or be able to you know, formulate my sentences without a tic, like literally stopping me from being able to complete the sentence that really compelled me and my parents to sort of say, hey, this is something that we really need to focus on and seek the help that we need. And when I started to see a lot of therapy and it was difficult at first. And um, I've always been you know, a social person, like to talk to people, be around people. And I started to experience some more hesitation in middle school, not just because, you know, I feel like there's multiple factors like middle schoolers are weird, you know, undergoing puberty. There's a lot of factors like that, but also the sort of social pressure. Oh, oh what do people think about me? Or is what I'm going to or my symptoms gonna to continue to stop me from doing things that I like, for example, playing the piano or just even being with my friends. Reese, I really like what you said earlier about uh, the whole Asian American community because yeah, I'm Asian mm -hmm. too. And there's a lot of cultural barriers that are uh, hard for people to communicate. And like you said, communication is a huge part of trying to eliminate the kind of stigma that surrounds you know, mental illness in general, whether it be super serious or not. And so um, sure. it is a cultural barrier to get through. And I think with younger generations, it is a little bit more clear. And like you said, again, older generations, it's more of a tough it out. Let's, you know, let's just keep it within ourselves kind of situation. But 
uh, you mm-hmm. being able to talk mm-hmm. about this really clearly and communicate it to other people that might be experiencing the same thing is really great because again communication is the first step and I also really liked how you said um, it's it's important to keep an open mind when you're you know talking to someone with a mental disorder because it's sometimes hard to understand it's really important so I really like what you said about that mm-hmm. I was wondering like if you could talk a little bit more about the social pressures, possible experiences, now you overcame them. So, you know, throughout my school experience from elementary school all the way to where I am now, I've received, you know, a variety of comments, some inquisitive, some not. And I try to have a more positive outlook on negative comments because deep down, I know that if they understood what it was really like, they didn't have that, you know, malicious intent. And while It's difficult for someone to just say, oh, I bet they meant well. I think it's important for people in the mental health community to be slightly more forgiving and, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt because it's not all their fault if they make a mean comment, but rather a lack of educational resources to everyone and how at school we don't really learn things like OCD or tic disorders or how common and pressing these mental health issues are. So I've definitely uh, experienced you know, a lot of, a variety of comments, people who uh, would point them out negatively or people who would sort of poke fun at them or make fun at them. And for a long time, I sort of just went along and laughed along with them. But then at some time I realized like, it's important to realize that their intention might not be malicious, but it has a negative effect on how I'm feeling. So if I reach out to them and tell them, hey, this is actually what I'm going through, it's, you know, a positive experience for both people. My friends can learn about, oh, what mental illness actually is and what different types of mental uh, health conditions exist. And also I can get out what I've been holding back in. And it's just a positive experience for everyone. So I try, I try to be as, you know, positive and not reclusive as possible, but try to make it good for everyone. Yeah. So again, fostering an environment that promotes mm-hmm. you know, talking about these things, and that's not easy. So props to you because that is oh, thank you. not the easiest thing to do. Our next question is kind of also related to this, but what do you think of the media's portrayal of mental health, like in uh, uh, TV mm-hmm. shows and teen drama films that tend to kind of romanticize or overdramatize mental health? Yeah, this is a really big one. And I think it contributes to the stigma and misconception that people hold sort of uh, portrays people with mental illness as either crazy people or people who can't function within normal, you know, social spheres. And while there are severe cases of mental illness where it impedes a a person's ability to, you know, talk or speak fluently or understand um, the way that it's been portrayed as uh, often been very negative and while there are you know good recent examples i hear like euphoria is a show that really interestingly um portrays mental illness things like depression and i haven't checked that out yet but i will but um for negative portrayals for example like i I know pretty little liars and lizzie mcguire with like eating disorders for example really misportrayed that and medical professionals were sort of uh, furious to see those types of media portrayals and the, such popular and widely viewed television and uh, like movie productions that just completely misrepresented eating disorders as something that you could just walk off or oh you wake up and suddenly you don't have an eating disorder or you don't need to actually find treatment which is 
a huge contributor to people not wanting to see a therapist or get a diagnosis or uh, understand what treatment they can do to better their own health, which is a hugely negative stereotype that people either, you know, there's no hope and you just deal with it on your own, or you never talk about it, or you just have to individually suffer, which is something that these, you know, media films unfortunately portrayed. Additionally, for example, for OCD, a character named Emma on Glee, for example, was really portrayed negatively um, on that show. And although there are definitely cases of OCD where people are really obsessed because like the O and OCD's obsessions, but they are really, you know, obsessed with things like cleanliness. The way that the show portrayed it was only the compulsions and not any of the mental aspects or not any of the, you know, very, very complex and scientifically backed up arguments why these things happen and how it would just be very inconsistent and sort of use it as a comedic prop to uh, serve as like a plot story or a plot arc and sort of used it and imposed those scenes by convenience was something that, you know, was really, I think, disrespectful. Yeah, I've seen that a lot in shows that I watch, but um, mm-hmm. in, a, in the show Gossip Girl, one of the characters, Blair, has like an eating disorder as well. She has bulimia, I think. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if it was portrayed properly, but I feel like it was portrayed better than I've seen other disorders being mm-hmm. portrayed in media. So like, one of the other sure. characters always like tells her, oh, you should see your doctor if this is happening to you again. Yeah. I'll, I'm here for you if you need anything, like, you know. And I feel like that was one of the better portrayals of uh, like an eating disorder or mental health sure. as well. But I've definitely seen all the ones that you had mentioned previously as well. So that that's not as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched the movie Split. I remember it came out in 2017, so I was it was a while ago. But it was about this character who was a kidnapper and a murderer, and he was diagnosed mm-hmm. with dissociative identity disorder, DID. And I remember, like, when I first watched it, I thought it was, like, terrifying. After I watched this YouTube video a little bit after watching the movie about someone with DID and their reaction to the movie, and they talked about how damaging it was and how harmful it was to the people with DID and how it portrayed mm-hmm. them such a terrible and like inaccurate perspective helped to like continue the stereotypes and stigmas around that so that was like something that was really interesting I thought and how like terrible it was that the media was doing that to people with mental illness. I definitely agree with you uh, on Split sort of portrayed the character as an act like a menacing threat to society and when there are cases where mental illness can, can be dangerous people with DID actually experience you know a lot of trouble with things like self-harm and portraying uh, mental illness in the media as someone who's like literally going to kill you is something super harmful and I think puts a really negative pressure on people who are already experiencing that and uh, compounds that social exclusion and negative stigma around the mental illness. Yeah and I feel like there isn't enough representation of those types of disorders in the media to begin with so just like the first mm-hmm. time it's represented in it's represented negatively and kind of like super, I feel like unrealistically, I think that's not okay. And I feel like the producers probably should have thought of that. I can just imagine like mm-hmm. how damaging that would be to the, to people who have DID. If that's yeah. like their only representation in the media is just that movie split. Like that's, I would, if I had that, I would be really upset. 
Yeah. Yeah. The problem is, it's just like with Hollywood and all of that, just portraying someone like Split. I watched that movie. It is a very complex disorder. It's so much more palatable for a big group of users just to make this disorder seem very simple and like this guy is just this terrible person, he's gonna come get you, etc. When really, like Reese said, mental disorders are very complex and you know, OCD isn't just like cleanliness, you know, it's a lot more than that. And um, so mm -hmm. it's just the problem of, oh, you can easily sell so much, uh, you can get so much money from you know, selling this very easily digestible movie to these consumers, but then you're sacrificing so much for that. Uh, like Kina said, such a negative stereotype because that's not, I mean, there are extreme cases, but that's generally, that's not really the trend. And so it is almost like bilateral between consumers and those people with mental illness because at the same time, if you don't know a lot about BID, for example, it reinforces internal bias within you and then for the people that actually are suffering from it it makes them feel like reset very socially excluded so it is a huge problem shifting kind of the focus of the conversation earlier you were talking about how because of covid and quarantine mental health has been pushed to the forefront discussion and people are realizing how much more common it is so i was just wondering how do you think the pandemic has affected people with mental health disorders such as like tics and OCD and how do you think it's affected you? I definitely think that the pandemic has had a huge impact on mental health especially in the context uh, of like urban cities people who usually experienced high amounts of social interaction collaboration uh, communication and are now sort of stuck in their homes through online communication have experienced heightened anxiety, depression, also uh, social, you know, confusions as to how they're gonna talk to people in real life. There's, you know, big things and small things, for example, there's huge, you know, very, very pressing statistics about how teenagers have been experiencing high amounts of depression and are not able to get that help because of things like closed mental health facilities, which is really, tragic and not something that we can really think of how we can deal with that because of things like a raging pandemic that has taken so many lives as well. So it's really a horrible position for many people suffering with mental health. Thankfully, a lot of neurologists and psychologists and therapists have transitioned to telemedicine, which is like online therapeutic sort of assistance, which is super helpful. And I've even like talked to my therapist over Zoom, which is something that I think is incredible that we're able to have access to. But that also heightens and brings out a new issue of like resource disparities, people who don't have access to things like Wi-Fi or readily available private devices and cell phones, computers that they can use to get access to things like telemedicine. But it's truly, uh, truly, truly devastating the effect that the pandemic has had, um, not only on people with existing mental health conditions, but also uh, the decrease in amount of citizens who get things like just going outside or getting exercise or um, experiencing the company of other people in a physical sense that has really impacted the way that we engage in life in so many different things in the workplace in our recreational time and i think that for me personally it's definitely taken a toll because uh, i'm more reluctant to go outside now not only because of the pandemic, but even in necessary situations, like meeting family members, for example, it's sort of awkward for me to be in that social situation. And I've 
noticed um, sort of a heightened stigma within myself and more being more self-conscious about how I look and how I portray myself and sort of um, revisiting that stigma that I had sort of you know suppressed or overcome in the last couple of years of high school has started to resurface and I'm working on that. But I think that, you know, if Zoom is all that we can have in order to protect the lives of so many citizens because of COVID-19, I think we're going to have to cre- come up with innovative ways to manage and cope with our health. Yeah, Reese, I agree. That's actually happened to me as well. Like it took me a while mm-hmm. to just, like you had said, suppress all those outward perspectives of myself. Mm-hmm. And now they're kind of resurfacing as I'm in less and less social situations. So that's definitely mm-hmm. been a challenge for me as well. And kind of unrelated to that, um, what you were saying about telemedicine, I've heard mm-hmm. a few people say that privacy is also an issue with telemedicine because if, let's say, parents mm-hmm. are super intrusive or, or um, sure. like therapy was like someone's safe haven and now they're just always around their family, like that's really difficult for them and their home has kind of become not as safe of of a place to be and I've heard stories of people who like have to go out into their cars and drive away like a little bit and park somewhere mm-hmm. to have their zoom sessions with their therapist because their family members yeah. like don't know how to respect their privacy so I feel like that's also a really big issue but I'm not even sure how you would begin to address that so as the pandemic rages on you know LA has what 20,000 cases a day we're probably gonna stay on distance learning throughout hopefully not the rest of the year, but what do you think, like, what's your opinion on how schools have accommodated students with mental illness and have they done a good enough job? Like, what should they be doing? Sure. So I think this, you know, once again, varies hugely on a case-by-case basis, but for example, I attend a large public school with uh, over, I think, 2,300 students and a very limited amount of counselors, so it's very difficult. And almost logistically impossible for them to be able to understand uh, how each and every student is feeling. Like, for example, in my English class, we had a day where our school psychologist came and talked to us for like 30 minutes about filling out a survey. And that sort of um, attitude towards mental health is unfortunate, but it's difficult because so many schools don't have the resources. And even then, for example, state and local budgets don't recognize the need for mental health time and treatment, which is so, so, so important and highly neglected. So I think that in order to better take care of students' mental health during the pandemic, I think it's important that schools uh, shift their focus to maybe a student-centered approach to mental illness and support the voices in their community and support individual narratives because obviously it's incredibly difficult for schools to have like you know a therapist meet with every single one of their students especially when we're going to schools with extremely large uh, student body populations but I think shifting the current narrative to more self-help you know active coping based mechanisms by hearing a variety of voices in our community and also incorporating things like mental health into school science programs, for example, elementary and middle school programs so that students can learn about the efficacy of therapy and how prevalent mental illnesses are. I think 
raising awareness is highly important for students to be able to not only understand themselves, but also be able to find the necessary next steps to take action. And schools can definitely support that. I have a question. So for the students out there that might not have access to certain uh, therapies and treatments that you were talking about earlier, is there any kind of resource, uh, and especially with a large student body population, I used to go to school that had like three counselors for like 5,000 students. If they're in that situation, is there any kind of resource that you could recommend for them to seek out to try to talk to someone? Yeah, for sure. So I do a lot of research online, and although it's highly difficult for students and teens to be able to access, you know, quality therapy, because not only are these therapists overbooked and dealing with their own research and their own studies. It's also a relatively new field, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure response therapy, a whole bunch of these different types of didactic trainings and therapies that try to attempt to teach people how to cope with their own mental illnesses. The National Institution of Mental Health, the NIH, which is, you know, most commonly abbreviated as, I do a lot of my research and I've learned invaluable things about mental health the statistics about how prevalent mental health and mental illness is around America. And just going through that website has really opened my eyes about how mental health can affect so many aspects of life, not just for teens, but for adults, for the, for the elderly, and how that changes over time. I think that website is a great resource for people to not only you know recognize the extent to which mental health impacts people's lives, but also understand the nuances between these mental illnesses and really take that first step and being able to empathize with others. Because ever since I was in middle school, I sort of only focused my research on things like tics, OCD tic disorders. But recently, I've learned a lot more by talking to people on Instagram and also talking to people and researching through the NIH, things like bipolar disorder, eating disorders, and how those are different and more nuanced. There's also a, a variety of teen networks online, for example, through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that I've joined and been able to speak to other teens my age from around the United States about how it is to deal with mental health issues. There's websites like teenmentalhealth.org, adolescenthealth.org. There's a whole bunch of valuable resources for teens to be able to reach and access in this moment in time. And there's even apps these days like Mindfulness for Teens. I know it was a huge one. There's also meditation apps that have helped me and my peers calm down in moments of stress and anxiety that are really, really, you know, showing us how technology can revolutionize and impact the way that we view mental health. I think that we can use social media for good via communication, you know, honest, more transparent accounts of what mental health is and what mental illness is. There are so many accounts like mine that I've been really touched to just DM them or get into conversations about how everyone's story is so different and so unique, but equally telling and incredibly educational. Yeah, that's really great. We'll link everything that you just said in the description of the podcast and especially your blog. And you're talking about the NIH, and I do a lot of research into uh, like drug use, especially because I, I live in the Central Valley. It's a really big problem. And PubMed, for the most part, um, but PubMed is a really big free research platform. And sometimes they only offer like abstracts, but you can still learn about a lot of stuff. And I have learned about so much in the past year, both on just mental health, but also about you know structural disparities that people face within mm -hmm. not only my community but the broader uh, spec you know broader community of you know like uh, California and stuff like that and so it is a free resource and I really liked how you brought that up because a lot of people don't know that know about that and a lot of it can be kind of um, 
a little academic, but there's still a lot of articles mm-hmm. and papers out there that are easily accessible that do communicate it in a very intuitive way. So um, that is something that I think a lot of people could utilize. Okay, uh, is there anything you want to say to anyone that's struggling with mental health right now, whether it be from OCD, depression, or anxiety? Sure. I just want to let people know that it may be difficult and inconsistent and confusing because mental illnesses are highly unpredictable. But I want to emphasize that there are ways for you to understand and be able to cope with what you're dealing with. And there's never, you know, there's never nothing you can do even if it's something like meditate or exercise or think about the situations in which your mental illness is heightened, there are so many things that you can learn just through introspection. And this especially applies to people that don't have readily available resources or access to things like mental health professionals or platforms, that there are so many resources just online um, that can give you an understanding of what you're dealing with. And while online resources are certainly never a replacement for an in-person professional diagnosis or prognosis or treatment plan, I think it's important that people understand that we are living in a time where there's just a huge database of information online that we can use to help us. And people are sharing their own experiences in therapies like CBT, ERT. And I think that having these transparent areas where we can discuss freely in a safe, you know, non-judgmental area is super important and that we're lucky to be living in a time where that's only um, increasing and becoming more accessible. So I understand that there are so many structural disparities that can hinder the ability for people to be able to access mental health resources. And I'm in an incredibly thankful position to be able um, to have things like therapy and get prescriptions and diagnoses. But if you're in a position where you're feeling like your mental state is not where it should be and you're feeling at risk or you're feeling like you can't control what's going on in your mind, like I felt a lot with things like OCD and Tourette's, I think that it's super important to realize that there are so many ways that you can learn about what's going on and find sustainable, helpful coping mechanisms, but like maintaining that positive attitude and the attitude of realistic, practical, sustainable lifestyle. That's a really great message, Reese. And um, I just, one last question. Besides Mindful Coping, your blog, and um, the few other resources you had mentioned throughout this podcast, do you have any other resources that you think you'd want people to know about that we could link down below? Sure. So especially considering the rise in discussions of things like social injustice, racial inequality, uh, things like horrible police brutality. I think that it's really important that we take into account a variety of perspectives on mental health. And uh, during the time when we were starting to become more open about discussions of things like Black Lives Matter and how the intersections between things like mental health and racial inequality. And I really heard some like shocking statistics about how Black individuals and the Black communities in America experience mental illness and, you know, unfair and prejudiced treatment, even among medical professionals at an unprecedented rate. And I've written about that on my blog. There are so many organizations, for example, like the Black Mental Alliance or the Loveland Foundation or the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. I think those are linked in my blog, but they're amazing nonprofit nonprofit organizations all dedicated in the pursuit of helping Black Americans specifically find the resources they need to be able to take those next 
steps, especially because of not seeing mental health conditions, but you know, the trauma that a lot of minority and underprivileged communities face because of things like oppression, social inequality, social rejection, things like bullying. I think that it's super important that we have an open mind when entering these discussions of mental health and taking into account you know, a variety of perspectives. And it really opened my mind to read about um, how Black mental health is really you know, indicative of so many other structural issues, which is a whole other topic. And um, Reese, where can we find you? Drop the ads. Yeah, yeah. drop your ads. <laughs> huh? <laughs> oh, like my Instagram? Oh, I thought you meant like my address. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, yeah. You can find me at Mindful Coping, which is my public Instagram account where I post daily and weekly updates about uh, my mental health content. You could also email me at Reese, R H Y S, dot mindfulcoping at gmail.com, where I interact with my audience and hear from a lot of amazing individuals. So I'd love to hear from you all there. You could always DM me. I usually respond as quick as possible to everyone. So I'm looking forward to hearing what people have to say. So Reese, we just want to thank you so much for coming to our podcast and joining us in this conversation and helping to educate us and inform everyone. You've been such an inspiration for, I'm sure, a lot of people with mental illness. Thank so you so much for having me. So glad to be here. You all. And thanks for listening to our second episode, everyone. This was such an insightful conversation, and we're so glad that you decided to join us today. Shout out to Reese. Stay tuned for our future episodes. We're excited to keep learning about different things and learning about our community and the people within it. Um, you can find us at AOTA Club on Instagram, where we have uh, our link tree linked in our bio which links our website our podcast and also everyone anything specifically to be addressed on our account or in our podcast feel free to dm us or request to be a guest and we'll make sure to research into what people in our community are passionate about as well as what we're passionate about so all right yeah. thank you guys for listening we'll see you next time